time to take a look at some civic politics. And you might be surprised to learn that even though some of the larger cities in this country, talking about Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Winnipeg, have independent auditor's offices, there is not such an office within the city of Vancouver. And could that change? Well, possibly. That is the topic of a new column by Vancouver Courier columnist Mike Klassen. And Mike joins us on the line now to talk a little bit more about that. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. It does seem a bit strange that given the size of Vancouver and the amount of money we're talking about, that there isn't an independent auditor. It is, but, um, you know, you we just came through just nearly about 10 years of uh, Vision Vancouver, and, um, you know, they would probably say that they were, uh, you know, wise in spending Vancouverites' money, but they did do a lot to make it much harder to know how they were spending it. They took away something which was called the budget book as soon as they got in an office, which was a detailed uh, budget that people could go through kind of line by line, if that's your thing. Um, so uh, it was quite opaque, so I'm not surprised that they didn't um, want to do something like this. So I guess with this new government, we've got a councillor that stepped forward with uh, some ideas on how to change that. And so it's uh, NPA councillor Colleen Hardwick, and you've written about this. A very uh, rather large uh, motion coming to council asking uh, to look at this idea. What do you think, or, or do you know um, kind of what the response has been, or what do you think is going to happen with this? Well, as I point out, there is uh, there are really kind of two stories. One is, you know, the fact that we are, uh, you know, looking to try and put some independent oversight. Uh, but there's also kind of the politics behind it. How how are you going to get something as ambitious like this through? Because um, I think uh, invariably um, the you know staff are going to tell council gosh, you know, this might become, uh, you know, take us over budget. It's a million dollars. It could mean a 0.5 increase in the sale uh, property tax. And so they'll make a, a pretty strong case for not to do this. They're going to make it sound like this is going to be an expensive line item. Um, and then there are, you know, a lot of groups in addition to staff. And I think staff probably might in some cases, um, might even consider this to be uh, uh, kind of a, an attack on their uh, integrity, which it, it's not really. It, it Really, these kind of independent things are not meant to be kind of personally aiming at one uh, staff person or, 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 or department or something. And then um, there are other groups that probably would be pushing back a little bit, and I, I expect the unions will uh, be a bit suspicious about this motion. So this is going to really test um, Councillor Hardwick's uh, skills of diplomacy. And, and if you've kind of seen her in council so far, she hasn't really um, indicated that she's willing to kind of reach out across the aisle and make those kinds of connections. So uh, if, you know, if I had any advice for her, is that she really needs to kind of work the hallways and, and talk to her fellow, fellow councillors about why this is a good idea and really get some buy-in before that, uh, that thing hits the council chamber floor. Uh, because you mentioned some of the numbers, and it does sound like a lot when you say that this is something uh, that an, an Auditor General's office could cost a million dollars or more. But then when you compare that to the budget, which is about $2 billion, and as you point out in the column, in other jurisdictions where they've done this, they've actually found savings in the millions. So that would that if that was the scenario in Vancouver, it would more than pay for itself. 
Precisely. And and you've got to think that um, if you do start um, uh, analyzing the numbers a little bit, you're you're likely to find savings. I mean, the city's been going along uh, for quite a long time. We saw uh, I think we saw the largest tax increase um, in sort of the last you know, decade uh, that happened last year. It was I think it was well over five percent. Um, and uh, this is the you know, this is what. The, the reason you want to put in a, an auditor is to to be able to kind of go through and and have some binding recommendations from an independent office that would report directly to council as opposed to reporting to staff. And I suppose, too, in light of what we've been seeing in Victoria with the legislator, legislative uh, spending scandal, it's not to suggest that anything is is wrong or criminal or untoward happening at Vancouver City Hall, but it is taxpayer money. And like you said, Vancouver residents have been faced with these property tra- tax increases that they're paying more. And it seems it seems that it's not outside the realm to ask that we just want to know where the money is going. I think what um, the aim here, if if you really kind of peel it away, is that there is a uh, a determination, I think, by Councillor Hardwick, and I think the whole council is to really start to put their stamp on this uh, on this administration. And I think having some <clears throat> clear understanding of how the numbers work will help them a lot. And as you mentioned, you know, we've got this legislative stuff, but we're tearing ourselves into bits over a, 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 you know, a caseload of booze. And, uh, and uh, I would think there's probably much, you know, more important uh, broader issues around um, how we spend and, and how we govern that are happening in the city uh, in comparison. So I, I hope that this council will look at it. And I hope that um, uh, Councillor Hardwick and, and can try and build that consensus among her peers because she's going to need six votes. So uh, in, in addition to herself, she's going to need another five votes. So she's got to find those votes, and it's not guaranteed that um, all of her NPA colleagues are going to support her, uh, notwithstanding they they tend to run on a more fiscal conservative platform. Um, so they've got to uh, they've got to do the work, and I think uh, this is a uh, I think this is a very timely, and it, it's about you know about really trying to see if we can get uh, the best use of our tax dollars, uh, which I think a lot of people would would totally agree with. Is there a way to do this without setting up an actual office of an auditor general? I mean that's a good question. I mean if you consider what a uh, you know, like an independent auditor might uh, charge in terms of salary, it's going to be probably at least a couple hundred thousand dollars. They're going to need some staff. Uh, all of the staff are going to come in with uh, you know somewhere around the six figures, and so uh, when you include all their benefits and and other costs associated with it, so you know if it runs into the million dollar mark, then um, then it probably is. Is going to be worthwhile, but the fact is that you need to have um, uh, this position appointed uh, that is accountable to to council for it to really work. There is a provincial auditor general for local government, uh, but as I describe it, it's become a bit of a toothless tiger after it was uh, established in 2013. Uh, all the um, audits that that office does are non-binding, so they'll go into a small town and figure out how much. Uh, they overspent on a hockey arena development or something. But we really don't get a lot from that office, which is unfortunate. And so this is an opportunity for us to really establish that precedent of having that independent binding uh, set of recommendations 
that would be uh, done at the city of Vancouver. All right. Uh, interesting stuff. And I think, again, people will be surprised to learn that there isn't an office already in place. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this this morning. You bet. Thanks, Joe. Well, if you spend any time going back and forth between Canada and the United States at the land crossing, you know it can be a bit nerve-wracking, even when you know you've done absolutely nothing wrong. There's something that uh, makes the palms sweat sometimes when you roll up to the counter and are asked for the reason for your journey into the United States and uh, then go, hopefully, on your way. But what happens if you get detained or if you get asked to hand over your cell phone or your computer? And is that happening on a more, is it happening more and more at the border crossings? Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Richard Curland. He's an immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Richard, great to chat with you this morning. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, is it anecdotal or do you think, are we seeing more people detained and questioned and in, in cases denied entry into the United States? Oh, no question. Uh, we're seeing more of it and we should see more of it um, uh, for surprising factors. This is not about President Trump. Uh, The last time the unemployment rate in the United States was this low was literally 50 years ago, back in 1969. So it doesn't matter whether you're President Kennedy or President Trump, the pull factor of jobs in the USA is significant more so than ever before, and American border people are vigilant about this. Uh, In addition to the economic pull, seasonality. The fall is the time where, believe it or not, some people in Canada want to enter the United States for a warmer winter. And how are they going to support themselves? So American border people have to be vigilant and screened for ties to Canada, property in Canada, employment in Canada, family in Canada. What they're looking for in this trial, as we've seen recently reported, are young individuals, single unmarried, uh, no good connections to Canada in terms of uh, property ownership or full-time employment, transportable skills like I plant trees, or I can work in uh, the um, uh, food industry or uh, in in nail parlors. Uh, The profile includes cash economy. So if you can work for cash potentially in the United States, the border people are going to be looking after this. So when Canadians who have done nothing wrong are appearing... Uh, At this time of year, uh, they can also be perceived as, well, uh, you finished your summer employment, you're not going back to school. What's the plan? Who are you visiting? Why now? Uh, So, no, I don't buy into this is politically inspired uh, in Washington on a wider um, uh, U.S. immigration take on on migration policies. This is pure economics, repelling would-be illegal workers from the United States, and enhanced profiling. Don't forget, there's over literally 100,000 illegal Canadians in the United States, and guess where a popular gateway is right here, Vancouver. Hmm. But what do you do then if you're if you're asked all these questions and detained, but you're really not doing anything mm. wrong? You're just wanting to go down there, whether you're going shopping or to visit somebody or, or doing something completely legitimate, and you do plan to come back. Exactly. And if you're having uh, a bad hair day at the border, you're within your rights to request to withdraw your application to enter. Do it. 
bite the bullet. So you've lost gas, time, maybe some reservations and some coin. But it's much better than being in a U.S. immigration uh, permanent secondary inspection uh, flag in, in the U.S. computer system. Uh, plus, uh, you may find that with sufficient probing, you are inadmissible to the United States. I mean, if folks from Canada truthfully answer the question, have you ever, prior to legalization, consumed cannabis? Well, uh, honestly answering, uh, you, you may be between a rock and a hard place. Uh, the Canadians engage the same type of behavior when they want to um, probe an American citizen who may be inadmissible to Canada with, with a simple question. You ever have a DUI and pay a fine? So on the Canadian side, we, we watch for um, uh, the drunk driving offenses. On the American side, they'll watch for the cannabis-related offenses. Uh, if you're carrying a cell phone or computer, heads up, folks, it's fair game on both sides of the border. It's not if you're uh, um, um, a CFO billionaire from China who's experiencing a secondary inspection at CBSA at Vancouver International and, uh, uh, and your uh, cell phone and computer's up for grabs. It's everyone. Uh, and there's very little you can do about it. When I engage international travel, I keep a, uh, a clean, quote-unquote, um, uh, computer uh, with minimal data uh, so that uh, I'm not concerned if my computer is seized at a port of entry by any uh, government, foreign or domestic. So uh, elementary precautions are there. Cell phones and computers are primary targets because it could evince intention. Border people, once they access your data, can see if you've already made arrangements for work-related appointments, work-related uh, employment. Well, there's a uh, just illicit employment without the uh, appropriate authorization. And that's done daily on both the American and Canadian side of our border. And, well, it should. I have some concerns regarding privacy, but until those things are sorted out by the Supreme Court on both sides of the border, uh, just travel safe and travel smart. Don't keep things in a laptop or a cell phone that are compromising in any way because you're unprotected. And is it different then? So if you witness a crime, police can ask to take your phone. They're only supposed to look if you took video of the crime or they're only supposed to access something that might be connected to the crime. Is it different at the border, though, when they take your yeah. phone and your computer, they can look at anything they want? Well, welcome to the wonderful world of immigration, because, you know, this is what the uh, Ms. Meng's uh, case is all about right now, as far as I'm concerned. CBSA and, and the Americans are entitled during an immigration inspection to do a heck of a lot more than uh, an inspection during a police encounter. Uh, at immigration, all is fair game because first you don't have the right to enter the country and in Canada there's no charter protections uh, uh, when you're undergoing these uh, CBSA examinations uh, that include the right to counsel or uh, the right to remain silent. And that's why in the Huawei case, uh, it's, it's alleged by defense that um, at the last minute, uh, CBSA was authorized to engage in a multi-hour examination of Ms. Meng uh, exactly because uh, 
uh, had she been arrested on the spot immediately as ordered by the court, her charter rights would have been triggered. And CBSA could not have undertaken that multi-hour examination because there are no charter rights <laughs> regarding the uh, right to remain silent or uh, uh, the right not to have that uh, CBSA examination. Uh, if you were arrested for criminal extradition purposes. So this is all going to be worked out uh, in future. It may well be that, you know, I'm looking forward to this one. It may well be that the um, um, uh, Huawei, the Ms. Meng case there, may serve as a precedent that's going to uh, undo CBSA control willy-nilly over your cell phones and electronic devices because you may indeed have certain rights when it comes to that, but it takes literally a billionaire to plow the road to give rights to millions of Canadian citizens in order to establish that precedent. So uh, this is an active, uh, volatile field. Uh, Individual liberties are in play, and you really cannot protect yourself until our um, Supreme Court of Canada, or, or similar level, says that uh, and confirms you have charter rights. Uh, and don't forget, as we're in an election, guess what promise has been ping-ponged for years and years and years? There's no CBSA oversight. There's no CBSA watchdog. We have uh, intelligence oversight over, you know, CSIS uh, and, and other intelligence agencies in Canada, the RCMP, Zippo when it comes to CBSA, so they can play cowboy until the charter draws a line. Uh, and, and that's going to come out with exactly the topic you're raising, cell phones, electronic devices at our ports of entry. All right. One more question, because you mentioned this, and I think people might be hesitant. If you are in that scenario, like you said, you can withdraw your request. You're at the border. If you've been taken in for questioning or if they want to take your phone and you don't want to hand it over, you can say, no, thank you. I'm going to just go back to Canada now. Do you get flagged in the system, though, if you do that? And then are you more likely to be stopped every time you try and cross? Well, the beginner's error is this. <laughs> people who think they're smart simply try another port of entry down the road. I mean, right. come on, don't do that. Yes, uh, there will be an indication, uh, there should be an indication uh, in the system, but then you can just explain it. It's a different uh, official, uh, and you have uh, a second roll of the dice, uh, but bring proof on your second venture, your ties to Canada, your employment, property, family, paychecks, credit card statements, lease for apartments, mortgage, tax bills. Yeah, you you may have to fill up that front seat with uh, three inches of paper, uh, but do it. Uh, It'll help you in the long run. All right. Good advice and interesting uh, what's happening there. Richard Curlin, thank you so much. We will leave it there, but we will talk to you again, I know. But thanks for being on the show today. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, if you were up early and outside, you likely noticed that it's a little cooler, feeling cooler these days. That's to be expected as we are into mid-October. So what happens moving forward with Vancouver's homeless and those who struggle to stay warm during these cold October nights and what will become even colder, likely November and December nights. Well, Jeremy Hunka joins me on the line now. He's a spokesperson with Union Gospel Mission. Jeremy, good morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, we sent, tend to talk about this every year, but uh, unfortunately, there's the need for that every year. Uh, how are things looking uh, at this year uh, the, with the cold winter weather coming and uh, what we're dealing with, with as far as uh, Vancouver's homeless population? 
Yeah, well, this year it actually came a lot earlier than a lot of people were expecting. The last few days were, were record low temperatures. I think it was 60 years was the last time um, it was that cold, and, and I saw some um, measurements that said it was closer to 90. It was just a really cold couple of days with record low temperatures and no people were not ready for it um people in the streets were asking our outreach teams talking uh, talking and asking for um cold weather gear to help them get them through they're looking for stuff that'll keep make them feel warm because it just was so cold and the cold weather really really keeps misery upon misery and those people are already homeless. They're already struggling. They've endured some difficult things to get them to the point of homelessness. Their immune system has already deteriorated. And when it gets cold like that, uh, it's, it's just, it just can be really miserable. And when you talk about the temperatures dropping and the cold weather hitting a bit earlier than expected, is the city prepared for that? Uh, the city has... Um, a, last year... They voted to keep uh, a, a few hundred, I believe, uh, shelter spaces open year-round rather than just having them open uh, through the fall and through the winter. And that's good news because we needed those extra shelter spaces. Um, I don't believe many people were anticipating this type of cold weather to hit so early. Um, so there are more shelter space, spaces um, open. However, we know that in our region there aren't enough. Uh, in 2017, um, the last uh, homeless count for our entire region, we know that there are a thousand fewer shelter spaces available than there were actually people who are homeless. So this is a big region-wide concern. Um, we, we do have more modular housing. We do have some more shelter spaces, but we're still not enough in that UTM. We know that because we're seeing our shelter spaces fill and to the point that we're totally full of 72-bed shelter and that, unfortunately, we still had um, more than 10 up to 12 turnaways during those, those cold nights. So when that happens, we can offer some, some cold weather gear. We can refer to other places that are hopefully open. But um, sometimes there's just not places to go. And that's got to be awful for staff. I mean, awful, obviously, for the people that are homeless, but as well to staff when you're at a place where the mandate is to help people, to tell people, sorry, you, you can't come in. Yeah, that's not, it's never a great feeling. It's, uh, it's, it's really, I think I've said it before, like, it feels almost like a punch in the stomach to, to our staff because they want to do everything they can, but there's not space in that moment. So what they do, they, we do have some cold weather gear that we can get out, give out, especially when the snow and rain starts where we'll be, we'll be giving things out like, uh, jackets, uh, waterproof jackets, waterproof boots, um, sleeping bags, um, sweaters. Um, but this, this month, we are quite low um, because it had been um, because the, the cold weather started so early. So we're already looking for those cold weather items like sweaters, jackets, boots. Um, if people have those things, they have lightly worn stuff. We'll we'll take those. You can you can drop those off at UGM uh, 601 East Tasting Street, and we'll get those to people um, as they need them and to those who need them most. We do have a mobile unit which goes out in a couple vans. They're uh, rescue vehicles um, loaded with cold weather gear and and other supplies to help people who are living and sleeping rough. Um, And we'll be doing that right through the fall, right through the winter. It is a really, it can be a really life-threatening time. We've seen people die in 
Metro Vancouver um, because they've been trying to warm themselves with uh, candles that that catch a, a tent on fire. Um, we we know that the life expectancy of people who are who are homeless is less than half than those of us who are housed. And a big part of that is because um, people who are outside get their immune system is diminished and they can really get sick. So we are seeing people already start to become ill, become cold, um, become sick because of the cold weather. Uh, we've hear, heard from people as well, and, and certainly it's not only Oppenheimer Park. Uh, if you go through around Vancouver and Metro Vancouver, uh, unfortunately, you see people sleeping on the streets and in doorways and in, in various areas. But looking at Oppenheimer, uh, heading now to the cold temperature, how concerned are you when you mention people using candles, people using propane heaters and becoming a big fire hazard? Yeah, I mean, that is always a concern for anyone who's sleeping outside because, like I mentioned, those, those candles are really dangerous. People, We do know people can get poisoned by using heaters um, or heating mechanisms that just aren't good for them. And then we can, oh, and then obviously there's the fire hazard. So, uh, yeah, it's not, we're concerned it's not just Oppenheimer. Um, last time we did a count, um, we knew of more than 30 um, homeless camps um, around Metro Vancouver and that we are actively uh, helping and, and, and serving. Um, so, yeah, that's why we need to get safe, warm weather gear to people, and we need to get them shelter, and we need to get them housing. Um, that, those, that's the ultimate. If we can do that, then, then, then that makes everybody happy, and everyone's a lot safer, and the, and the, and the region is a lot better as a result. Uh, do we know the numbers or if there are, because it does seem walking around anecdotally, it does seem like there are more people that are that are openly sleeping in the streets. So the last homeless count showed that we were at a record high of homelessness. So 2,223 in Vancouver was the last homeless count. And of course, we do believe that that is an undercount. Um, there's a lot of people who are part of the hidden homeless that are couch surfing or sleeping in vehicles or, you know, really actively doing a lot to try and hide the fact they're homeless because of the stigma that that's heaped upon them when they are homeless. So we do know that, that the last homeless count went up about 2%. To another record high and that um, yeah so the, you would be seeing that um, and we're hoping that we can get those numbers to come down good things are happening like we like the um, the modular housing that's been put out um, the, the provincial government putting a lot of emphasis onto that and onto other housing and those things are great they take time and we need an escalation on every level. And uh, I, I hope that also when people are going to the polls, this election, uh, they just consider their homeless neighbors and what's best for them as well. Do you find at all or are you concerned that with the ongoing camp in Oppenheimer, uh, with some of the coverage or some of the things that we've seen there, be it stolen bikes, uh, increased crime in the area, is there a concern that people are less uh, likely to help out or they're getting so frustrated with the situation there that they don't help, whereas in the past maybe they would? Oh, gosh, I hope not. Um, I guess that's always a risk when when something like this is ongoing and people don't tend to hear the nuances or or the details of the individual's life who are there. They just hear about the situation. And then they start associating uh, the problem of homelessness instead being a problem of a homeless person. And that's not the case. They're two very different things. And I really, when I last went to, went to Oppenheimer, I spoke with a woman who broke down in tears because she didn't know what to do 
or where to go. And she, um, she was completely distraught and she felt like she wasn't getting the support that she needed. And she had a long story of, uh, of some really terrible things that had happened to her in her life. And she was a, a wonderful, uh, otherwise really eloquent person um, who was just like, it was just like talking to, to my sister or to, to my cousin. Like it was just, I, we had a really good conversation and I couldn't believe um, that, that things had gotten so hard on her. And I, and I think that people need to always remember that there's a backstory to everybody's life. There's a reason somebody is in, in a homeless situation now, but that doesn't need to be the end of that person's story, and often it's not. We help people get through homelessness and get out of homelessness every week at UGM, and if we continue to do that, then, then that, that stop at Oppenheimer, that stop somewhere else on the street isn't the last stop. They've got a, 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 a future ahead of them, and then we do see people get into housing. Like you see them get vehicles, get jobs, reunite with family. It's really beautiful when that, when that unfolds. And people need to realize that these are, these are human beings with, uh, with, with futures, and we can get them through that if we work together at it. All right. Uh, Jeremy, we'll leave it there. Again, the address uh, for the UGM, 601 East Hastings. Uh, if people want to drop off any uh, gently used or new clothing uh, to help people as the temperature drops. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. You bet, Jill. Thanks.